Welcome to Catch Outdoors. I'm your host, Captain Rob Modi's contact email is catchoutdoors at gmail.com. The website's catchoutdoors.com and our Facebook page, Catch Outdoors. My most recent book, Bridge to Paradise, was released this past November. It's available on my website at catchoutdoors.com. Those copies are signed. They can also be purchased along with my first book, What I Know About Fishing Southwest Florida, on Amazon Kindle. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on when you're listening. <laughs> Today's episode is number 22, titled Short Stories. I have to admit that I'm a professed storyteller, uh, mostly all true with some embellishments. After all, I am a fisherman. I love stories, especially short stories, those that get to the point and are thoughtful, mostly fun. Uh, things are weird enough in the world right now, so a funny lightweight story is what I crave the most. I'm going to start off this morning with a short story of mine. It's from my book, Bridge to Paradise. However, before reading it, I want to preface it with some details of how this story, guys named Captain, uh, came to be. So here we go. I moved back to Florida, the state uh, I, without a doubt, love the most. In 1993, I was offered a job to move to Miami from Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> that offer was a no-brainer. <laughs> That's a story in itself. I may have to get to that at some point. But anyhow, my first stop was Jacksonville, Florida for training. Uh, I was going to be an IT management vendor uh, for Barnett Banks, which at the time was based out of Jacksonville. and was also the largest bank in Florida. Uh, what's IT? <laughs> what's it stand for? Information technology. IT professionals are the people who build, test, we install, we repair, we maintain hardware, software within organizations. We're actually responsible for helping make decisions on what to buy and what not to buy, including routers and all kinds, just everything. Servers, the, the whole ball of wax is, is typically what we do. It's a big job. Lots of pressure. After all, banks play with real money that belongs to uh, real people, and there's really no room for error. In 1995, my vendor renewal came due, and I was offered a position with Barnett as an employee. In August of 97, Barnett was purchased by Nations Bank, and in 1998, Nations Bank then acquired Bank America and rebranded the name slightly to uh, Bank of America, and then merged the two. And at that point, Nations Bank took on the Bank of America name. Complicated, huh? <laughs> Banking, yeah, it was. I was part of both transition teams and was transferred to Fort Myers to work on the bank updates from Naples north to Punta Gorda. That was right after Y2K. And, oh, and for you youngsters, uh, that was the changeover from 1999 to 2000, the year. Uh, a year fiasco where the press was uh, pumping the idea that the year 2000 could be a disaster for many things, including bank accounts. Uh, computers of the day, just to step back a little bit, computers of the day only understood the last two digits of the year. So when 2000 rolled around, it was believed that all the computers would revert to 1900. And you'd either lose all your money 
or <laughs> look at the bright side, you might get 100 years of accrued interest. It, either way, it was bad and it was complicated. So the computer operating software and biases, that's the thing that, that, that makes the computer think or uh, it's oversimplification, but that's what it is, the BIOS. And every computer had to be fixed to read four digits for the year. I was on a beach in Isla Mirada that New Year's Eve night with my wife, Janelle, and a very good friend of mine, Steve Kay, who was also a banker. We had been instructed that we could not be further away than 50 miles from the banking hub of South Florida's East Coast. Pulled out a map and quickly realized that Isla Mirada was within the perimeter. <laughs> so with pagers and cell phones in hand and beach chairs and whatnots, we headed to the Islander Motel, one of our favorite places to stay in all of the Keys, which, by the way, now is a giant resort with prices to match. We set up our little beach camp behind the Islander and watched fireworks launch from the boats that were waiting to bring in the year 2000. And as the clocks chimed 12 midnight and the ball fell in New York, a collective sigh of relief was heard when absolutely nothing happened. We waited until about five minutes or so after midnight to see if we'd hear the pagers going off. But uh, they didn't, thank goodness. Nope. <laughs> so we popped the champagne corks and celebrated the new year. So once Y2K and the transitions were complete, a great many of us were no longer needed, and away we went. That became known in the industry as the Great American Bank Downsizing. <laughs> that's what I called it. And that, funny, because that's how the news picked up on it, too. Uh, banks just, they had been merging. They had been playing. They had been jumping around from state to state and uh, even parts of the country to other parts of the country. And then finally, it all came to a head when every, every big bank had bought every little bank, and it was pretty much over. Why tell you all this? Because uh, it's a lead into the story I'm about to read to you. The high pressure of working in technology in the late 90s and early 2000s led me to many, many weekends in the Florida Keys. It's a great place to let your hair down, relax after a tough week in the big city. Nobody knows who you are and nobody cares. Um, everybody, everybody just gets along. And most people, when they go down there, do not talk about work. That's the most important thing. After Jonelle and I met and were married, we kept the, tra uh, the tradition, uh, not the transition, the tradition, alive and eventually uh, bought a fishing skiff, uh, a Key West 17-footer, and we later kept it in Isla Mirada and fished just about every other weekend. So basically that, that, that decompression kept right on going even when I met Jonelle. She was in a high-pressure job too in Miami, so we were both kind of dealing with that. On one of those weekends, I was given a sign and a vision. Here's the story. Guy's named Captain from my book, Bridge to Paradise. I'll do my best not to bumble through this because I'm actually going to read it to you. So, I have loved fishing for as long as I can remember. I was lucky enough to have a father that took me fishing when he could and grandfathers that both loved the outdoors. But being a full-time fishing guide hadn't occurred to me until one fateful day on the island of Isla Mirada in the Florida Keys. I had just finished lunch while sitting at a bar on the upstairs porch of the now-extinct Papa Joe's restaurant when I decided to take a walk downstairs to check out the skiffs tied up to a nearby dock 
There was a shallow water flat skiff on each slip with a captain's name printed on a board hanging over each boat via a mooring line. I remember thinking how great it would be to have my boat in one of those slips and live the life of a charter fishing captain. Unbeknownst to me, the seed was planted. Over the next several years, I got my captain's license and began doing a few fishing charters on Biscayne Bay near Miami. At that time, I was working as a technology manager for a bank. So this captain plan was actually going to be my retirement gig. One of my many guardian angels thought otherwise. Soon after a transfer by the bank to Fort Myers, I became one of the many who lost their job during the great bank downsizing in the early 2000s. I started a job search, but in the back of my mind, I knew, boy did I know, I had a feeling that this had been a sign. This voice kept saying, run, leave the corporate world and seek a better life (laughs) and be poor. (laughs) Oh boy, sounds like fun. A call from my mother who lived on Sanibel Island was the beginning of my new life on the water. She'd seen an ad in the local island newspaper for a licensed captain needed to run sightseeing boats for island trips and fishing. I applied and I got the job. At the same time, I began a charter fishing business called Soulmate Charters, which grew much faster than anticipated. I soon lost interest in driving tour boats, buses on the water, and focused solely on fishing charters with no more than three anglers on board. I was in heaven. I ran trips almost every day and was finally able to pay bills, eat a steak every now and then, and live comfortably. My life had completely changed. No more suits, no more ties, no more boring staff meetings, and no boss. I was my, on my own and could schedule 10 trips in a row if I wanted to, or none if I needed a break. I no longer had to call in sick. <laughs> Soulmate charters steadily grew over the next five years, and I began running a lot more fishing trips than I ever thought I would. Perhaps I was doing something right, or more importantly, I was lucky to be associated with a great group of fellows and other like-minded captains. One evening, I got a call from a friend of mine, Captain Mark, who said that Al Durrett, the owner of Fishtail Marina on Fort Myers Beach, wanted to meet with me. I was told that he was looking to set up a fishing charter group that could run a variety of trips, including both offshore and backcountry fishing, from his marina. His idea was to put the best group of captains together and, in his words, rule the charter business on the island. I was flattered to be included, but honestly, I was a bit reluctant to give up the freedom of coming and going whenever I wanted. And there was also the matter of completely changing the location of where I currently fished. There were several meetings where all, where all the invited captains had questions answered and fears allayed. We'd still be independent, but would have the use of the marina to meet our clients. And I'd like to point out, it was a very nice marina, well-kept, clean, and offered great access to the fishing grounds of Estero Bay and the Gulf of Mexico. I finally relented and made the decision to be a part of this new enterprise. A short time later, I towed and launched my boat at the Lover's Key boat ramp, a short distance from the fishtail, and then drove my boat over to the marina. I was met by Mark as I pulled up at the fuel docks. He pointed toward the end of a long dock and said, your slip is the third one from the end. I'll meet you there and help you tie up. As I rounded the end of the dock and pointed my boat into the slip, I saw the sign, reserved for Captain Rob Modis. Yep, 
I finally had my name on a placard at a slip in a marina. I was very proud of that accomplishment, to say the least. I guess I should actually say I was some, somewhat amazed, <laughs> but there it was. Here's another untold part of the story. I mentioned in the reading that I began my guiding career in Key Biscayne, just south of Miami. But truth be told, my very first paid charter trip was actually in Florida Bay, uh, just off of uh, Isla Mirada. I truly wish I could remember my client's name, but uh, alas, a combination of old age and, and missing old calendars have taken their toll. I do remember he worked at the bank, I was work, the one I was working at. And, uh, and he'd heard I'd just gotten my captain's license. Perhaps it was a test. Perhaps he was just being nice. I don't know, but, but uh, it, was the first, it was the first trip. He also wanted to use his boat, which happened to be a Hughes um, 18-foot Redfisher, A-OK by me, because you have to understand back in the 90s, that was a fairly new boat, and, uh, and a lot of buzz and a lot of talk was going on about Hughes boats. I however, however, I remember being uh, scared to death. I was taking money to take someone fishing for the very first time. Uh, but as it turned out, all was well. We had a great time with good conversation, catches of sea trout, a real nice snook, and lots of sharks. And it seems sight fishing sharks was what brought the most smiles to my client's face, uh, a lesson I used much later when I began fishing Florida's West Coast. Most importantly, that first trip told me all I needed to know about uh, what I really, really, really wanted to do, be a fishing guide. And so I set my sights on that from, from day one. In a weird way, being let go from the bank was the uh, best thing that ever happened to me. I was suddenly forced to um, make life decisions way before retirement age. So here's some advice. If you love fishing and you've often thought about making it a career, do it. But be sure to treat it like a business. Have a plan, a map, if you will. You're going to be poor for at least three years. So a fallback is a real good idea. Or a big savings account. Or a rich and tolerant wife or husband. <laughs> I was lucky to have one of those, the, the wife part. Part-time guiding is okay, but you'll never reach the kind of success you might hope for working another job. Just ask any full-time guide who went through the throes of doing part-time work and then moved it to full-time, and they'll tell you they wish they'd skipped the part-time entirely. Um, granted, you got to get back to that you're going to be poor and you need a little savings, you need something to fall back on to pay those bills, but the reality is it's like any other brand-new entrepreneurial job. When you start out with an idea and you throw it out there, and you start working at it, you ain't going to get rich tomorrow or even next year. You hope that's what happens, but we all know that's not how it works. In America, it's a really cool place. You, you work hard at things, and, and your dreams will come true. While I saw a few successes, most part-timers fell by the wayside. The sad thing was I believe a good many of them would have been excellent full-time guides and just never made it to that point. So don't be afraid to follow your dreams, no matter what the dream may be. Remember, again, this is America, where dreams are made every day, even for fishing guides. Now, keeping with uh, the short story theme here, um, a few months back, I got news that one of my stories that I had written got published in a book. And uh, 
that's the first time that's happened other than me writing a book with my stories in it. Uh, most of my, almost all of my stories have either been uh, published in uh, magazines, uh, monthly, bi-monthly or weekly periodicals, newspapers, things like that, reporting, whatever, fishing reports, stuff like that. So, but I had written a story for um, the publishers of my book. They were putting together another book called uh, COVID Chronicles, and when and then the pandemic hit. Um, it's by Middle River Press, so those are the people that that actually uh, uh, did my book for me, published my book for me. Um, but what this was is this: they were asking people, you know, please send us something. We'd like to try to put a book together about everybody's thoughts and ideas of how the pandemic has gone. Now, what was really strange about this, and what you should know is, is that this book actually was scheduled to come out about a year after the whole thing started. So everybody's theory at that time was this would be over by this past March or March a year ago. We're almost coming up on two years, so this would be, you know, almost a full year ago. Uh, but of course, we know that's not what happened. But the story still made sense. I read through a whole bunch of these. And again, you can get this book on Amazon uh, Kindle. It's called COVID Chronicles, and then the pandemic hit, and it's published by Middle River Press. And it's a whole bunch of us authors who have written books for or have been published by Middle River Press. And I'm honored to say I got the first story. Um, there are, there looks to me like there's 100 and, 131 pages of this. I, I didn't count the chapters, but I got the very first story, which is fun. I wrote a story called A Bike, A Garden, and a Virtual Cocktail Party, which was pretty much about what happened to me during all the craziness of the early, early part of the pandemic. I mean, the, the true lockdown, the one where, I mean, I'm, I'm being treated for cancer, which by the way, on February 25th will be exactly seven years that I'm still hanging in here. So I'm pretty proud of that. Um, but I wrote it about the trials and tribulations of exactly that, of, of being one of those uh, Corbin morbidity, morbidity, you know, uh, holy cow, I might die people just if I go outside and breathe. Um, to Things got better and better and better as we went along for the year. And part of that was buying a bicycle, <laughs> which I, most of you probably won't remember. But if you tried to do that two years ago as an outside tool to get a little exercise and to at least get out and do something, you found that it was very difficult to even find a bike. And I, I went through trials and tribulations to get that handled. I went crazy on my garden. And most of you know I'm a, a freak about orchids. I love growing orchids and all the things that go along with it, the satisfaction of watching them flower and et cetera, et cetera. I, I love doing, I love that. I really do. I, I'll put it right in there with the fishing. Um, and then we put together a virtual cocktail party, which was really fun. It was an idea by a friend of mine up in Kentucky who uh, decided that Zoom would be a good way for all of us to get together once a week and chat about what was going on, and, it, and it, it still goes on. We only do it once a month now, but uh, the virtual cocktail party turned out to be a really great idea. So if you get the book, check out A Bike, A Garden, and Virtual Cocktails uh, Party. That's my story, my contribution to the book, and I'm, real, I'm proud of I finally got a short story in a book. <laughs> Yay. All right, let's switch channels just a tad bit. Still still in the, in the subject of short stories. I have... Um, I have in my notes here to mention this, that I was asked during an interview years ago. <laughs> I, I don't know how it came up. I think I was probably talking on the PBS show that I did 
um, we were talking about music and, and things like that. And, and in the conversation, I remember someone said, I'm not sure if we even recorded this or not, but it was about short stories. And because that's what I wanted to work on, uh, my, my book, um, the fishing book was in the works and I talked about the next book I wanted to do, which was short stories and, and of course did it. And then it popped up like, what was your, well, okay. So, and they, they asked very, very, um, cool questions during this interview. And it was like, what's your favorite short story? And, and I really had to think about it for a minute. And then I remembered, um, there's an, an author, his name is Richard Matheson and Richard Matheson wrote a story called Duel. Uh, this was back in, I looked it up, hang on, I've got it here in my notes. In 1971, he wrote it. It's called Duel, D-U-E-L, Duel. And um, it appeared in Playboy magazine. That's actually where it was first uh, printed, <laughs> back when Playboy had more than just pictures of pretty women. <laughs> yeah, I know, the old 70s thing was, why do you have Playboy? To read it, to read the stories, of course. So Duel appeared in there, and Duel... Uh, wound up being picked up by Steven Spielberg and made into one of his very first films. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I, I didn't go and look and see if it's, um, it's bound to be available somewhere, but it is, it is truly a short story, so it's a short film as well. Um, it starred uh, Dennis Weaver, and he's uh, like a salesman in a car, and he has a little argument with a trucker on the road, and it's not the trucker. It suddenly becomes a duel with the truck itself, and the truck becomes evil. Uh, kind of just imagine a uh, the the movie uh, Stephen King thing, Christine on on steroids. Scary, frightening. But the short story was amazing. It was wonderfully written, and I'm sure that's probably why Steven Spielberg picked up on it. So that is is without question one of my absolute favorite short stories, and of course, later developed for film. Another one, uh, the author is Shirley Jackson. Um, man, I'm showing my age. <laughs> okay, so it's very possible if you're listening, you had to read this in school. You had to read a, a short story called The Lottery. Frightening, scary, oh my gosh, just one of those things. And Shirley Jackson was really good, in my opinion, of both horror and hilarity. She could tell a funny story at the just as well as she could still tell a horrifying story. But the lottery was pretty creepy. And you got to remember, now this goes back to, I looked this one up to 1948. The lottery was really neat in the fact that it had an ending that you didn't really expect. And in my opinion, that is the best short story. Um, it just, it's, it was chilling. Then on the flip side, uh, Shirley Jackson also wrote a book. I, I know this really isn't a short story, but it's full of short stories. It's called Life Among the Savages. <laughs> it's, it's raising kids. It talks about her children and the crazy things they did. And I just absolutely love that book. So if you haven't gotten into Shirley Jackson, you probably should. And many of you probably had to read The Lottery uh, as a school book. Um, although in today's world where they're starting to ban books right and left, it's it, to me personally, that's worrisome. I just, I can't believe they're doing that. So uh, those of you that are listening that have children or grandchildren, I encourage you to pull up the latest list of banned books and have your kids and grandkids start reading them. That, that ought to put them on their ear. I'm a pretty big um, fan of uh, Elmore Leonard because Elmore Leonard was one of the guys that wrote a lot of stuff about, based in Florida, based in, in the Miami, Florida area in particular, uh, novels that were 
kind of Carl Hyacin-like. If you want to get more about that, go back and listen to one of my early podcasts about Mystery Writers of Florida. But Elmore Leonard was really, really cool. He he put together some hilarious characters that you you'd just be like, this can't be real. And you knew, you knew if it was Miami, it very possibly could be real. Uh, he wrote a short story called The 310 to Yuma. And uh, it was made into a movie, a Western, a violent Western, to say the least. Um, but the 310 to Yuma is just, it's about a train, and that's all I'm going to tell you. It's a short story. Uh, you can, I, would, I would recommend picking up Elmore Leonard's story and reading it. Probably pick it up online. Um, and then possibly watch the latest movie. Uh, I believe there were at least... I think that film may have been done three different times. Uh, of course, that's that's the neat thing about a Western. You know, they got to get it all told real quick. Like back in the day when they were making the early movies, they had about 90 minutes. They didn't have the two hours they spend on a movie now. So, But uh, check that one out. Uh, that's another one of my favorite. And he has other short stories besides his, his mystery novels that are really, really good. Now, believe it or not, another guy on the list is Stephen King. Now, Stephen King novels can be 9,000 pages or not. Plain and simple. And one of his stories that's really, really good is called The Body. You probably don't recognize that title. Um, I looked it up as written in 1982, and it later became uh, the movie that everyone saw, Stand By Me. Uh, Excellent, excellent. But believe it or not, that was a short story. The Body was a short story. And Stephen King has others, but that one, I just wanted to mention it because it really sticks out for me. Um, I read Stephen King when they first came out and when he first came out, when he first appeared on the the scene, and and I really enjoy his books. Uh, Very, very scary. The Shining is probably one of the scariest books I ever read. That doesn't count as a short story, but you can read that. If you haven't read it, you probably should. I always crack up when my mother tells me about her her round with The Shining. Uh, we had moved from Florida to Kentucky back in the late, I'm going to say it was 69 or 70, somewhere right in there. We moved to Kentucky. Uh, Dad got a job up there. And on one horrible, snowy winter day when we were all locked inside, my mother decided it would be a really good idea to read The Shining. <laughs> if you know the plot of The Shining about the family stuck in an old hotel and the snow and they can't go. In. I mean, to me, that was just hilarious. When she first told me that, I actually cracked up. I'm like, man, you could not have picked a worse, a worse time to read that story. I, I can't end this without mentioning Edgar Allan Poe. Um, as a kid, I enjoyed reading it. I had a book. I had a, I wanted, I think it was called like, scary stories or horror stories or whatever. It was one of those teen books that you get. I don't, I want to say it might've been a gift, a Christmas thing from grandparents or parents, but it's one of those oversized, uh, like coffee table books, very glossy with a horrifying picture on the front. And it was ghost stories. It was just full of great ghost stories. And then there was Edgar Allan Poe. And of course, as a kid, I had no idea who Edgar Allan Poe was, but I know one thing. He wrote this story called The Telltale Heart. And it scared the bejeebers out of me because it was about sound. And I recently read an article which led me to this whole, this whole identifying short stories for you. Um, uh, now, I'm sorry, I can't tell you who wrote it because I really don't remember. But it, he believed that the entire genre of 
horror films with thumpity thump and creaks and noises in the background is because of Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. And you have to remember this, that was written in, um, hang on, I wrote it down, 1843. So he was saying a lot of these movies you see now that have clicks and pops and bangs and thumping and bad noises and breathing and whatnot, probably Edgar Allan Poe started the whole thing. And I, I don't doubt that at all. Uh, but if you want to read something that that's frightening, it's it's really, really neat. And I certainly wouldn't pass it. Not to mention Edgar Allan Poe has a whole slew of, of uh, short stories that a great many of us, again, had to read through school or, or college literature classes. So uh, be sure to try that one out, too. I haven't picked out a subject for next week yet, but I'll post it when I when I come up with it. Janelle and I are going to do a little traveling. Uh, we're going to do we're going to become Scottish again. Uh, both of us are Scottish and have Scottish heritage. Uh, we're going to go up to Mount Dora to the Scottish Games there. Then we're going to go to the Scottish Games here in Fort Lauderdale. And then we're going to go to the Scottish Games in Dunedin. And I may come up next week with something uh, about the Mount Dora event. I have, I've never been there. I watched a video recently to see what the place was like. And uh, I know it's not too far from Orlando, but I'm looking forward to it because I absolutely love going to um, Scottish gatherings. They're, they're a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you taking the time to tune in. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you please tell a friend and share it on social media? More numbers are good. <laughs> Catch Outdoors is hosted by Anchor and available via Spotify and Apple Podcast. Our Facebook page is Catch Outdoors. Our website is catchoutdoors.com. Until next time, get outdoors and enjoy. Enjoy.